Hey y'all, it's Kathleen and MC, your two favorite winos. It's that time again, so grab a glass or a bottle, unless you're driving, and let's get weird. This podcast contains adult content and crime details, which might not be suitable for all listeners. Please drink responsibly. Hey y'all, welcome back to our fifth episode of Uncorking the Truth. I'm your host MC, and today while Kathleen settles in for the crime portion of the show, I can't wait to tell you guys about the wine I've chosen for this week's episode. Not only is it my personal favorite, but it's won multiple awards and you can find this wine in most grocery stores nationwide. But before I get too wrapped up in the wine jargon, I just want to give a special shout out to one of my best friends, Angelique, for bringing this wine back from Washington DC for me about four years ago and introducing me to a category of red wine that I'd never really experienced, Pinot Noir. Bread and butter Pinot Noir is what's in my glass this week, folks, all the way from Napa Valley, California. Since I've already done a deep dive on Napa Valley, I'll skip right to what Pinot Noir is and a little cinematic history to help paint you a picture. Why are you so into Pinot? (laughs) I mean, it's like a thing with you. (laughs) I don't know. Um, it's a hard grape to grow, as you know, right? It's, uh, it's thin skin, temperamental, ripens early. It's, you know, it's not a survivor like Cabernet, which can just grow anywhere and uh, thrive even when it's neglected. No, Pinot needs constant care and attention. You know, and in fact, it can only grow in these really specific little tucked away corners of the world. And and only the most patient and nurturing of growers can do it, really. Only somebody who really takes the time to understand Pino's potential can then coax it into its fullest expression. Then Oh, it's flavors. They're just the most haunting and brilliant and thrilling and subtle ancient on the planet. Pinot Noir is without a doubt the most romanticized red wine in the world. No other grape brings out the kind of emotion and devout worship among its enthusiasts than Pinot Noir. Festivals are thrown every year in this grape's honor, and an entire movie, Sideways, was devoted to the passion this wine brings out in people. Sideways has had such a cultural impact in the U.S. that it has single-handedly both elevated the profile of the grape and also done it harm. And it's caused many novice wine drinkers, like myself, to associate Pinot Noir with wine snobs. One of the reasons I think Pinot Noir licks such passion is because it's really hard to grow, which results in a great bottle of Pinot Noir being hard to find. Discovering a great Pinot Noir becomes an obsession, as the movie depicts, and those passionate about the wine love to talk about their discoveries with other like-minded drinkers. This devotion can cause Pinot Noir champions to be a little insulting to other wine drinkers, feeling the need to convince those drinking anything other than Pinot why it is the best wine out there. 
I'm sure most of you that have seen the movie remember when Paul Giamatti's character insists on insulting anyone who drinks Merlot. Giamatti's actions remind us of an alternative rock fan trying to convince a classical music enthusiast to give up Nirvana and listen to Mozart instead. Some Pinot drinkers are so passionate that they will fail to recognize that all the varieties of wine have something to offer. Just as Nirvana can be great in some situations, and Mozart in others. Wine, I have come to learn, is not a one-size-fits-all. Pinot Noir was born in the Burgundy region of France, and it's in Burgundy where the best Pinot Noir is still produced. Like many other regions of France, Pinot Noir producers do not refer to the Pinot Noir wine as Pinot Noir, but instead call it Red Burgundy, after the region where it's made. The wines from Burgundy have flavors of ripe red berries, sweet black cherries, mushrooms, and what Salomiers call forest floor, that smell you get from freshly fallen damp leaves. That said, while wonderful, red burgundies can be expensive. Due to the priciness of most red burgundies over the past century, producers around the world began to try growing the grape. Today, great and affordable Pinot Noir can be found in California, Oregon, Australia, Chile, and New Zealand. Pinots from these regions tend to be bigger and richer in flavor, tasting fruitier than the Pinots from France. Pinot Noir is a wine that goes well with all types of food. My personal favorites are scallops or a fatty fish. You could also pair it alongside veggie-inspired dishes too, maybe some heirloom carrots or a caramelized shallot and mushroom risotto dish. Bread and butter Pinot Noir is a staple on my wine rack. I tend to take this wine to every supper I'm invited to, and it's always an instant hit. It's the wine that your Merlot friend Shirley would love, while also appealing to your Cabernet friend Jessica's palate as well. It's all about that juicy red fruit, y'all. Think cherries and raspberries with a touch of cassis. As the folks who created this beauty would say, quote, This wine was made to be easygoing and approachable. Because good things shouldn't be complicated. Good things should just be good, honest, and simple. A bottle of bread and butter is the opportunity to take a break. Kick your shoes off and unwind. A reminder to literally stop and take a load off. Sometimes the best things in life are those simple pleasures which is why Bread and Butter believes in making good, honest, delicious wine meant to be simply enjoyed. Don't overthink it. I will link where to purchase this wine in our show notes, but as I said in the beginning, it's easy to find and should be on most grocery store shelves. Now, grab a glass of your favorite vino, because you're going to need one for this week's case. Let's do the damn thing. January 31st, 2011 was just like any other Monday in rural Georgia for 18-year-old Amanda Callahan. She had just picked up her younger sister, Alana, from the bus stop at the end of their driveway. After dropping her sister back at their family home, Amanda headed back down the half-mile-long dirt road to pick up her brother, who rode a later bus. When the two of them returned home, Amanda immediately knew something had gone terribly wrong in the short 10 minutes they had been gone. As the siblings were making their way to the front door, a family friend and neighbor, Aaron Schmidt, exited the home looking distraught. When Amanda asked Aaron what was the matter, Aaron said that someone had taken Alana and was headed towards the woods. In a panic, Amanda ran out of the back door to hopefully find the kidnapper and get her sister back. Moments after stepping outside, Aaron exclaimed that he saw Alana laying on the ground just past the tree line. 
Amanda headed into the direction of Aaron's sighting, and it was only seconds before she saw what no sister should ever have to see. Her younger sister, lying lifeless on the ground, covered in blood. Amanda immediately called 911 and was desperate to help her sister in any way she could. She attempted to perform CPR, but it was soon clear that she was too late. Alana Mae Callahan was a 14-year-old who attended Harlem Middle School. She was very active in her church, Bethesda Baptist, and loved being a part of her youth group. She was known by all for her contagious smile and her infectious laughter. She was goofy and she truly treasured spending time with her friends and family. She loved riding four-wheelers and adventuring out into the woods. Alana's dad described her as extremely gullible, and it was sort of their little joke that he could just talk her into anything. Alana was an A student who dreamed of becoming a lawyer one day. Her mother said she was, quote, pure and innocent. Police arrived quickly to the crime scene and began their questioning. The 14-year-old neighbor Aaron told police that he, quote, saw a black guy. He was standing at the back of the house when I came up through the woods, end quote. Aaron claimed he tried to chase him away, but he just wasn't fast enough. The Columbia County Police Department immediately launched a manhunt. Deputies with canines set out on foot to start canvassing the woods and surrounding areas in hopes of finding the individual who did the unimaginable to this little girl. As detectives continued their investigation, they entered the home to see if there was any evidence that could lead them in the right direction. They noticed that inside at the desk, the computer chair had been turned over and there was a large amount of blood on the carpet. The blood trail continued across the floor, out the back door, and down the set of wooden steps leading to the yard. At the edge of the steps was one of Alana's socks, which led to the fresh trail of where Alana's body had been dragged 200 feet into the woods. As the family was giving their accounts to police as to what happened, there was one person in particular who gave police an uneasy feeling. Unlike the hysterical Amanda Callahan, Aaron Schmidt was calm, cool, collected, and virtually emotionless. He was showing very little interest or concern, and there were a few times when police observed that he was almost smirking. Police said that when Aaron would notice someone looking at him, he would pretend to cry, but as soon as they looked away, he would stop. Definitely not what you would expect of someone who just lost a person they deeply cared about. Immediately, police knew that something just wasn't right, and they needed to get him down to the station for some further questioning. At 5.20 p.m., only two hours after Alana's body was found, police had Aaron in their interview room. Aaron told police that on his way over to the Callahan home, he saw someone going through the woods to their gate. He drew diagrams of where he saw the man going, and police officers in the interview room were relaying this information to officers at the crime scene to try and track this man down. No matter what areas the investigators searched, they continued to come up empty-handed. When Aaron was asked to give a physical description of the man to police, he claimed he was a, quote, tallish, blackish dude, but he ain't black, he's white, end quote. It was pretty clear to police that Aaron was not confident in his story and that they needed to dig deeper to get some honest answers. 
Police remembered a very specific detail that would give them a glimpse into the truth of what really happened. The Callahan's number one rule of their home was that you had to take off your shoes when you entered. When police were made aware of this rule, they went out on a limb and asked Aaron to take off his shoes. What they uncovered from his socks told a whole different story. This broke the case wide open because the tops of Aaron's socks were covered in blood. As soon as Aaron realized there was nowhere to hide, he broke down. I didn't mean to hurt her, he exclaimed. He told police that they were just goofing around and that he didn't know the gun was loaded. He claimed that Alana had the gun first and she was pretending to pull the trigger and that he told her not to do that and took the gun away from her. Aaron said that when he was trying to take the gun back, it went off and shot Alana in the back of the head. Though Aaron sticks to and swears by his story, parts of it weren't adding up for police. After Aaron shot Alana, he dragged her bloody, lifeless body out into the woods, left her in the dirt and sticks, and made up the story about the abductor, all in that short 10 minutes. He told police that he picked her up by the sleeves, and when he was dragging her, her head was, quote, flopping back and forth and back and forth, end quote. Even though we know that everyone handles grief differently, the behavior shown by Aaron was extremely unusual for someone who was so close to the Callahan family. Aaron was at the Callahan home almost every day. They considered him part of the family. He joined them for family dinners, received Christmas gifts from the Callahans, and helped the father with things around the house. Aaron had a hard childhood, and being raised by his sister, it seemed like the Callahans were the family that he always wanted. It was very clear that Aaron had an extremely traumatic childhood, and there were numerous accounts of sexual and physical abuse of Aaron. The new guardianship by his older sister was a breath of fresh air, but there were still some scars that will never heal. There was a time when Aaron was seen by a child psychiatrist who described him as severely disturbed due to the horrible abuse. It seems that Aaron was never really given the chance to mature in a healthy way. He was usually welcome at the Callahan home up until a week before the murder. On that specific Wednesday, Alana had arrived home to find the front door unlocked and Aaron inside the home. This scared Alana and she told her mother, Betty. When asked how he got in the house, Aaron claims that they had left the door unlocked, which Betty knew this was not true. Understandably, this made Betty extremely upset, and she told Aaron that he was not allowed in the home unless she or her husband was there. She also forbid Aaron to come over before 5 p.m. on weekdays. The parents kept guns in the bedroom, and a rule was made that no one was allowed to go in there and especially not touch the guns. Apparently, Aaron didn't take this threat too seriously, considering he was in the home not even a week later before anyone else got there. Upon further questioning by police, they discovered that Aaron had been sneaking into the Callahan home while they were gone and even stole items belonging to the family. Some of the Callahan's items that were found stashed in his bedroom were an iPod, another MP3 player, a gun box with the owner's manual, and a digital camera. 
Aaron finally admitted to having taken Alana's father's handgun from their master bedroom days before the murder, which ended up being the exact gun that he used to shoot and murder Alana. The gun box and owner's manual found in Aaron's room were those belonging to the murder weapon, which proves he had the gun before the day of the murder. Although Aaron sticks by his story that it was an accident, it was later determined that in the position of the handgun described by Aaron, there would have had to have been 13 pounds of pressure applied to the trigger in order to fire the handgun. On March 31, 2011, a Columbia County grand jury returned an indictment against Schmidt, charging him with the malice murder and felony murder for aggravated assault, possession of a firearm during the commission of the crime of murder, and theft by taking a handgun. Schmidt was tried before a jury in February and was found guilty of all charges. On March 2, 2012, he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for the malice murder, five years in prison for the firearm possession to be served consecutively to the life sentence, and 10 years in prison for the theft by taking to be served concurrently with the life sentence. The felony murder verdict stood vacated by operation of law. In 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that, quote, mandatory life without parole for those under the age of 18 at the time of their crimes violates the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishments, and that a judge or jury must have the opportunity to consider mitigating circumstances before imposing the harshest possible penalty for juveniles, end quote. Prosecutors pointed to the fact that Alana was killed in the 10 minutes she was alone in the house as proof that the murder was premeditated. He timed that murder to perfection. It's like something you'd see on TV, Judge Anna said at the time. According to the Schmidt v. State case summary, a motion for new trial was filed on March 6, 2012, and an amended motion for the new trial was filed on February 20, 2014. The motion for new trial as amended was denied on April 23, 2014. A notice of appeal was filed a few days later and the case was docketed in this court for the April 2015 term and the appeal was submitted for decision on the briefs. Schmidt argues that Judge Annis did not let jurors know they could choose to find him guilty of involuntary manslaughter, which would be a less serious charge. Aaron claimed that his trial attorney was ineffective and that his sentence was cruel and unusual punishment. Presiding Justice P. Harris Hines, however, says that the court has rejected all of his arguments. He finds that the evidence, quote, was sufficient to enable a rational trier of fact to find Aaron Schmidt guilty beyond a reasonable doubt of the crimes of which he was convicted, end quote. A decision in 2016 titled Montgomery v. Louisiana ensures that the Miller v. Alabama ruling be applied retroactively, allowing parole hearings for the 2,100 individuals who are currently incarcerated under life sentences that were handed down when they were minors. Because of this ruling, Aaron is able to appeal his 8-year-old sentence. Quote, I was 14 years old. I really messed up. End quote. He says in a promo for the A&E series, Kids Behind Bars. As the friends and family of Alana Mae Callahan continue to grieve and mourn the loss of their little girl, Aaron Schmidt, now 22, remains behind bars at the Hayes State Prison in Trion, Georgia. This family will never know who Alana would have become. 
they will never get to watch her walk down the aisle or see her become a wife and mother. All the Callahan family has now are material items to remind them of Alana. There was a memorial made behind the Callahan home filled with crosses, stuffed animals, and gifts to remember the sweet 14-year-old girl whose life was taken away too soon. The family says it's a place where they go to speak to and pray for her. The day he can walk free is the day they go to the cemetery and dig up my baby and say it's all a big misunderstanding, says Alana's mother when asked if she was upset about the possibility of Aaron being released from prison. The Callahans remain committed to opposing any legal action on Aaron's behalf. Hey guys, welcome to the end of the episode chat. I think one thing that's hard about this case is that there's no question who did this, but we don't know exactly why or what was going through his head at the time. Alana's mother's only question that she hasn't been able to ask Aaron was why. Why he did this to a family who took him in and cared so much about him. I mean, what was his motive if there was anything. What do you think, MC? So I've been kind of back and forth on my interpretation of his motive. One of the things I thought about was maybe it was out of jealousy of Alana. Mm. Maybe he was envious of the relationship she had with her family and wanted that all to himself. Or he was upset at their breakup. I remember, you know, I read in several articles that were they were said to be girlfriend and boyfriend at one point, but her pastor told her that they were too young to be engaging in those types of relationships. So exactly. I kind of I, I fiddled around with that idea. But I think probably I'm leaning more towards the first of those two, which was the jealousy that he had for their family and how he wanted to be in that himself. Like he wanted to have that all for himself. Yeah, that makes sense. I remember in the police interviews, well, the first police interview that they had with him and they asked him, you know, why he didn't, why he didn't just leave her there if it was truly an accident. Why tell them what happened? And his response was that he didn't want them to be mad at him and he didn't want them to not want to be around him. And so I feel like either way, if this was an accident or not in that moment, he was super upset at the thought of kind of the only family he has. He knows now, no matter what, they are, you know, not going to like him. They're going to be upset at him. Right. Yeah. And I can totally see your point there. Also, the fact that he tried to cover it up, it's like, you know, when you're a little kid and you spill something on the carpet and you just go mm-hmm. and put a paper towel over it and you think, oh, no one's going to see it. Right. It's it's child's logic, but it's the logic that they think works. And mm-hmm. that's kind of, I think, where his head was. He's kind of like, well, I'm going to cover this up real quick. Um, I got to think of something really fast. Like, I don't want them to be mad at me. You know, he fought his whole life to be nurtured. And he finally found this family that wanted to give him some sort of nurturing for the first time. And like you said, whether it was an accident or not, his immediate response was, I need to I need to hide this from them so that they're not mad at me. So Kathleen, I know in your story, you mentioned that Aaron was abused as a child. And I was just trying to see if there was any more info about that. I mean, what led to that testimony on the documentary? So yes, there was. And in that documentary, it's really where I 
found that information. I kind of looked a little bit more for it and I couldn't find a whole lot. But how it happened was the lawyer that Aaron had hired for his retrial, they actually went to his sister's house, him, who was his legal guardian at the time. And they kind of did an interview with her and he just really wanted to dig deeper into Aaron's childhood and his past. And that's when his sister, Aaron's sister, told the lawyer about this. Aaron's dad was in jail. He was never really around very much. And so he was being raised by his mother. And there was one time when his older sister had went over to the house where they were living and the mom was gone off doing something. And there was two total strangers watching the kids. It was Aaron and his other sister. And according to her, it was pretty clear that there had been some sexual abuse going on. And so immediately she called CPS and got custody of him and you know he went to therapists and things like that and they kind of confirmed all of this that you know he had been suffering from sexual abuse and all kinds of different abuse pretty much his whole life so at the time I don't remember exactly how old he was when um, she got custody maybe five or six and so you think for six years of this kid's life where his you know brain is forming he's supposed to be learning how to like you know, do things in the real world and what's appropriate and what's not. And so you can see how traumatic this could have been and how damaging, you know, on on his mind and what's okay in life. And so it makes sense to the point that you were making earlier, the child's logic kind of thing. Okay, oh, I made this mistake. How do I cover it up really quickly? I'm not, he's not sitting here thinking through it like us adults would, you know? I think that that abuse that he had as a child definitely played a huge part in the way he was reacting and even down to why he was feeling jealous if he was about their family. I mean, we've all read a ton of studies done on sexual abuse and how it literally changes a child's brain and alters the function and cognition and emotion and the impact that it can have on them, especially as, you know, teenagers and adolescents. Yeah, I could definitely see your point there. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second because I feel like that is my character on this podcast to be (laughs) the devil's advocate. I think Um, it's good. (laughs) Yeah. As far as the abuse, we have this testimony of his sisters that he was abused. Mm -hmm. My first problem with that is that she is his sister, so therefore she is biased to him. Right. Mm -hmm. Not to say that he wasn't abused, but I think for a court to find that sort of evidence pertinent, they would need more than just his sister's testimony. Right. Because I'll tell you what, if my sister was sentenced to life in prison, you'd be bad. I'd be coming up with all sorts of things to defend her position. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. But again, that doesn't mean he wasn't abused. I think if there was more than just her testimony, then they would have, I think, a better leg for his defense. I hope he has seen a psychologist. I'm sure he has. Um, Obviously, we just weren't able to find that sort of information because it is privileged. But like you said, they when they tried to get their retrial, the attorney was coming around asking more questions, and hopefully they were digging more into that aspect. Yeah, because like you said, you know, we've talked a lot about it in our Butcher of Hanover case, you know, the likelihood of a child that's been abused sexually or physically or emotionally is likely mm-hmm. to offend. The likelihood Absolutely. of them offending is greater because they were abused. 
Mm -hmm. I think you're totally right. And it is interesting because, like you said, not saying that it didn't happen, but it's not like there was this long list of the police being called or CPS records or not like from the beginning. And, And I don't know if the family knew about this. I don't know if the Callahan family knew his past or knew anything like that. So it, so it's really hard to tell if they were aware of any of these problems. Sure. And I think in a case like this, like you said earlier, neither one of us will really know. Only Aaron knows what happened mm-hmm. to him as a child. And that's only if he remembers it. That's going out on a limb and saying he remembers the abuse if there was abuse. But I'm sure as a kid, you you pack those sorts of things down deep within yourself and mm-hmm. they manifest themselves in different ways. I'm sure the Callahans probably had no idea. Right. I really don't think so either. I think it's interesting to me to think about the fact that he was going over there when they weren't there and not just kind of snooping around, but like taking things. And I think it just shows a little bit of a different side than this kid who loved this family and just wanted to be around them all the time. You know, I know if if there's a family that I love and respect, I'm probably not going over their house when they're not home and taking their things. I think that that can full circle itself back to the ways of what we were just saying of how it manifests itself differently. Mm -hmm. His emotional turmoil could have been manifesting in ways that were deviant, like theft, Mm -hmm. doing things that were inappropriate, showing up at the house when he wasn't supposed to be there. But then on the other side of that, he's doing these things that are, I mean, you know, quote unquote disrespectful. But then when he's going in the house, he cares enough to take his shoes off. Is that when the family's home that he's doing that? Well, I'm, I don't know if he was doing it without when they weren't home, but when the murder happened and he got there before anybody else was there, he took his shoes off. Yeah, but that could have just been like muscle memory. You know, like yeah, if I come in the true. house 80 times a year and I take my shoes off every time, mm. it's just muscle memory at that point. Yeah, that's true. I feel constantly pulled between the sadness of a family losing their child and then another child who has had a long, excruciating life of abuse. It's just really hard to tell. You don't know what exactly happened. But police do believe that Aaron would reoffend and kill someone else. But his sister's lawyer and other friends he had would swear that he would never do anything like this on purpose. I guess that we can get into the trial a little bit and talk about that for a little while. Yeah, I definitely had some notes about the trial here. I I watched the trial a couple of times. And one of the things that a lot of the articles said was that he was just emotionless. He didn't cry. But is that really a gauge of someone's emotions, the ability or inability to cry? You know, I think everyone is different in that regard. And that doesn't necessarily point to him feeling remorseless. Right. You know, everyone handles grief differently. For sure. And I also noticed that his public defender didn't even really attempt to defend him. I know. That was super weird. Yeah. And I was like, well, maybe she was overworked or the mountain of evidence that was presented. Maybe she figured the nail was already in the coffin. Mm -hmm. I noticed that she didn't ask many questions of the prosecution's witnesses, and she didn't call a single defense witness to the stand to testify on his behalf, which seemed really strange to me. And then on the other side, he was pretty much getting ripped apart by her. 
And then, but I don't know if you saw the part where they were showing like crime scene photos and asking, I don't, I think it was a police officer or one of the investigators. Okay. What's this? What's this picture? What's this up? And then they're showing Aaron and he's clearly upset. He's crying. He's looking down. And you know, when he was asked about that, he was like, they wouldn't let me leave. Like I did not want to see those photos, but they wouldn't let me go anywhere. And so he's forced to sit in there while they're, you know, showing these crime scene photos. And I mean, he, he's upset. His nose is getting red. You can kind of tell he was upset in that moment. So I think that, yes, there are times when he wasn't showing a ton of emotion, but that's not all the time. He was upset sometimes. Yeah. And also, I mean, if there was this kind of abuse going on, why didn't the defense attorney call his sister to testify in his defense? And have a psychologist on the stand to attest to his abuse as a child. It's bizarre. If that was really a a chess piece in the game, you know what I mean? Like if, Mm -hmm. if they had that in their pocket, why didn't they play it? Yeah. And I think that's what leads me to believe either this defense attorney just figured, well, he's guilty. I'm going to lose this case anyway. I might as well not even put forth the effort. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you're defending a 14 year old kid. You're not defending a, a 34 year old adult whose brain has fully developed, whose emotions are mature enough, you're defending a 14-year-old. Yeah, I think that was one of Aaron's arguments for the new trial is that he felt like she really didn't do a whole lot and that, you know, he definitely wasn't given a fair chance in that. Oh, absolutely not. She did nothing. She didn't just Mm -hmm. not do a lot. She did absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. She lost every motion and pretrial hearing until his actual trial. I do agree that he looked terrified during the trial. Yeah. He looked scared. He did. Just staring down. I mean, I I watched it quite a few times and I don't know anyone in that specific moment who could have said that he was emotionless. It just wasn't true. You can't fake that type of... Uh, I mean, you can, but... Really? As a As a 14-year-old, I don't, I don't know if the ability to fake that kind of thing is there. Some people can fake it, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's why there's actors and actresses in the that's world. That's scary. <laughs> I don't like that. I, I like know. to not think that people are that way. <laughs> I know. So once he was convicted, did you happen to see that interview where one of the jurors said that no one in the jury was comfortable with the outcome? No. Oh, yeah. So I watched this interview with one of the jurors, and they said that no one on the jury was comfortable with the outcome. And if they had only presented one witness that could testify about his troubled past as a mitigating circumstance, they might have been able to be more lenient. Oh, my gosh. That's ridiculous. That's crazy. I know. But, you know, they're also watching the parents speak, the siblings speak. Yeah. One right after the other. And they're all calling for life without parole. I mean, they're in pain. They're in such severe pain, no words can describe it. Right. I remember watching the judge speak and he started off kind of solemn, saying that he never had a chance in life and that he was robbed of the possibility of reaching his full potential mm-hmm. and that he had no control over his circumstances. And, you know, maybe this horrible act was his twisted, misguided way of taking some sort of control. And then he sentenced him to life in prison without parole (laughs) and said that it was not a punishment, just a decision which would prevent another murder in the future and believed that he was beyond redemption for all of his life. (laughs) 
That's not fair. I understand having to set some sort of, you know, precedence. Like, okay, you kill somebody, you're not just going to be given a slap on the wrist and, you know, okay, continue. But then you have to take everything into account and, you know, the age of this child, what this child has been through. And with that being said, if that's the case, you know, not just letting them walk free. It's like clearly there's something going on mentally and they, they need some help. Well, I think what we can deduce is that children are different from adults. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's tons of research that show that the regions of the adolescent brain that regulate impulse and emotions are just not fully developed. And Mm -hmm. this is one of the reasons why children advocates argue that children cannot be held to the same standards as adults when they commit crimes. Also, to expect a terrified and emotionally scarred child to exhibit remorse like an adult makes no sense. Right. Children who commit crimes are oftentimes too traumatized to have such mature, developed consciences. Right. You know, yeah. like you said, we do we do have to hold them accountable because children are still children, even when they do unimaginably violent things. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that's why they were working so hard to make all of those changes to give these minors, you know, a little bit of a chance and not just automatically sentence them to life in prison. I think it's important for them to consider some of these different circumstances that happen in these children's lives before imposing this extremely harsh sentence that affects the rest of their life. If you liked our podcast and want us to keep going just hit subscribe or rate and review we appreciate all your feedback if you want more info about this case and the wine we selected for this week's episode check out our show notes thanks for listening until next time set your alarms lock your doors drink some water and don't text your ex stay weird friends